Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. So we ended up with two complete responders out of seven in this double-head diffused large B-cell. But what's really remarkable, Neil, that this complete responders were very prolonged. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios podcast series by LifeSci Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Ahmed Hamdi. He is the founder and CEO of Encerix. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Neil. Thank you. So first things first, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Encerix, let's start with the elevator pitch. Doctor, the challenge, 60 seconds or less. Tell me, where are you headquartered? How long has Vincerex been in business? And give me an idea of what they do. Thank you for the chance. So Vincerex is a company that's headquartered in Palo Alto, California, in the Bay Area. We also have offices and labs in Germany, just around there. We are a group of people that have worked together for a number of years, developing a couple of important drugs in the hematology space both ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. And we came together to build a new company. We have acquired a very exciting pipeline from Bayer where we have a small molecule compound that has been tested in several malignancies, including double-hit diffused large B-cell lymphoma, where we have two out of seven complete responders for a period of three and a half years and two and a half years, which is really quite remarkable to have a monotherapy compound give that type of responses in a very difficult type of lymphoma to treat. We additionally have a pipeline of bioconjugation compounds. We have a small molecule drug conjugate, and we have the next generation antibody drug conjugates that should be in the clinic in the very near future. All right, so we have lots of science to talk about, but first, uh, in keeping with the mission of this podcast, I want to talk for a bit about you. You have uh, quite a long journey, uh, quite literally. You were born in Cairo, and you trained there, but you came to the United States as a young man. You had family here, so that made it a lot easier, and within a short period of time, you found yourself working at the CDC. You left the bedside, and you went into molecular pathologies that relates to cancer, could you explain that journey to me? Why didn't you want to practice medicine? I've always wanted to practice medicine. Nevertheless, I was very intrigued by the principle of what triggers cancers and how the prognosis of cancer and how do you treat patients with cancer. So I've always been one of the guys that always thinks of how do you treat patients the best way you can treat them. And in the era of PSA and and early 90s where we were doing PSAs and every patient that walks into a urology office, I didn't know how to treat prostate cancer. And it's always been an issue that I wanted to explore and to understand more about the prognostic markers of prostate cancer. And that's how I wanted to get into more of the research, understanding the mechanism 
of how cancers progress. I see. Well, to further that goal, you left the CDC after two and a half years. You went to the University of Colorado Medical School, and you were doing much the same there. This was experimental pathology at cancer. In 2001, you left academia, and you start your business career with a senior scientist position at Watson Pharmaceuticals, a company that was eventually acquired. And I always ask people who they have their nice office and maybe their grants are coming in, why leave academia? So safe. So it's actually a long story there, but I was working with Dr. Gary Miller, who was a tenured professor at the Department of Pathology and the Department of Urology. My main focus was prognostic marker of prostate cancer. It had a lot of biomarker-driven thinking, and also we did a bunch of clinical research looking at prognostic markers for different types of prostate cancer in different grades. Sadly, Dr. Miller dropped dead at the age of 50, jogging home, which uh, put me in a very difficult situation where here I am working with my mentor, and he's the, the person that I've been spending all my time with, and it was a difficult situation. Also in my family, where my wife and I were trying to build our family, so we're doing IVFs and whatnot, and it was time to grow up and get a job. Oh, um, I've heard this before. So the thinking was, well, let me get into the industry. I've been doing clinical research as part of my graduate work. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try and see what happens. All right. Well, long story short, what happened is you became involved with some very prominent companies. I'm going to name a few. You first assumed a leadership role as medical director at Alza Pharma in 2004. 2006, you're at PDL Pharma, much the same role. In 2009, you assume the CMO role at a company I am very familiar with, and that is Pharmacyclics. And I'm going to set up this question with a quote, and this comes from your LinkedIn. You quote, negotiated important and difficult policy-making matters with internal and external executive level management, end quote. Now, I know without giving too many details that this company went through hell, and you were part of guiding them to approval, which was remarkable. Tell me just a bit about did you learn more about how to run clinical trials or how to organize people to do what you needed them to do? Well, both, actually. As you said, Pharmacyclic was a, a great learning experience. It was my first Fourier as a CMO with a leadership role. And it was a quite difficult situation where I got into Pharmacyclics after the board has resigned. And there was uh, quite a bit of emphasis on the lead compound at the time, metoxifen gadolinium, that has failed several phase threes. Yet there was three other compounds in very early development, which included the BTK inhibitor. And I was responsible of putting a strategy for those compounds and moving them forward. Although the previous management have had some designs for these compounds, but it was quite difficult to get them into the clinic and started talking with a lot of key opinion leaders and trying to understand it was a first-in-class new mechanism of a BCR signaling pathway inhibitor, BTK. Uh, it was still a new mechanism of action. So there was quite a bit of learning and also quite a bit of clinical operations and clinical development challenges where you're talking with investigators that they don't know how this compound works. And therefore, we had, at the very beginning, we had very difficult patients that were really terminal. And 
once they started seeing promise of efficacy, and it was quite exciting. And this started learning about the different types of lymphomas and what would be a registrational path. Given at the time, ofatumumab was the most recent approval in CLL. I recall at the time it was 57% of CLL patients responding to ofatumumab in two different groups. And at the time, to beat ofatumumab was unheard of. So to see a compound like BTK or now ibrutinib having a very high response rate in CLL and in mental cell, that was really unheard of. And it was quite a bit of challenges navigating through the new paradigm of treating CLL and mental cell among a new mechanism of action and a management that is not scientific. So there was challenges from that perspective. I won't discuss any personalities on the other side, but congratulations for seeing all that through and no one got shot and good job. <laughs> but vindication is a powerful thing. So Pharmacyclics, for those who don't know, was later sold for God knows how many billions, I forget. And you go on to co-found and then we're CMO at something called Aspire Therapeutics. That merged to form a Pharma, and it was then now part of AZ. So the listeners, if you haven't figured this out already, you know a great deal about drug development. Now, tell me when you start, about when you started dealing with investors. Now, these are very different than scientists. Was it a learning curve for you? It definitely has been a learning curve. When I was at Pharmacyclics, I was doing quite a bit of the investor presentations to the investor world. And it was my initial exposure to this. Although I had a little bit of exposure at, pharma, at uh, PDL, as a therapeutic area head, I was challenged with selling my approved drugs. So it was also, there was a, a little bit of experience there. Nevertheless, it's a completely different world being in the investor world versus the academia or the clinical world. And it's a learning curve. Understanding how investors think was something new for me. And it's still a learning experience. Okay. So. You have all that experience and you take this into this new venture. In June of 2020, in the heart of the pandemic, you found the Xerox. Tell me, what was the attraction and why this timing? So this is a great question, Neil. So after I left Pharmacyclics, we started a small company called Aspire Therapeutics, meaning myself, Raquel, my partner, who worked with me also at Pharmacyclics and at PDL before, and our friend Francisco Salva, who was also with us at PDL. At the time, Francisco asked me, what would you like to do with your life? And I said, well, I'd like to develop good drugs. I would like to develop drugs that are helping patients. And I want to develop drugs where science is driving the process, not the investors, not the money, just science. So he looks at me and says, well, let's just do that. So we started a company at the time called Aspire. We started looking for compounds. We came across, long story short, but we came across our friends from the Netherlands who have the medicinal chemistry and the biologist who started the next generation BTK inhibitor. I think the combination of the two groups made it quite promising that we can develop the next generation BTK inhibitor, which is now approved as Calquins and AstraZeneca acquired it. I stayed with AstraZeneca for a number of years help putting few of their hematology oncology compounds into the clinic. Nevertheless, Raquel and Dr. Bird myself has always been talking about, you know, we would like to do another 
company where we have true science driving the drug development. We've been looking for quite a bit for compounds. We spoke with several, Big Pharma. And as my partner Raquel says, when you have two gold medals, sometimes it's very hard to have a third gold medal. And to put our names behind a pipeline, it has to be a worthy pipeline. So it took us quite a bit of time to find compounds that we are excited about until we were able to get compounds from Bayer. We have a very exciting pipeline. And I'm a total believer in the science that we have in both the small molecule CDK9 inhibitor and the bioconjugation platform that we have. So I'm pretty excited about this. And I think we were putting a company together that is focused on science. I'm sure you're going to ask me, where did we get our name from? Well, I'm going to answer it now. And the name Vincere means to conquer. And we aspire to conquer cancer by addressing unmet medical need with paradigm shifting therapeutics. And that is really the driver that gets us moving every morning. That's how we wake up every morning. I can tell you the ethos of the company is focused on our assets and our vision and trying to help patients. If you ask anybody in Vincerex, they'll tell you, we are here to help patients. And this is an honest statement. Well, you've anticipated my very last question is, why should I invest in this company in one sentence? And that was a very good sentence. But now let's talk about science. All right, VIP152, this is your lead asset. This targets something called PTEFB. This is all part of the CDK9 signaling pathway. It's a cyclin-dependent kinase involved in transcription of RNA polymerase 2. So big, uh, high-altitude mechanism. Why do you want to target this? So PTEFB, or positive transcription elongation factor beta, its main role is to phosphorylate RNA polymerase 2, which its function is to allow for the elongation machinery to start making messenger RNA that eventually turns into proteins and eventually get the cell functioning. So when you inhibit RNA polymerase 2, you inhibit messenger RNA transcription of known oncogenes like MYC, which is described in more than 40% of malignancies, and like MCL1, which is a known protein in the apoptotic pathways. So by inhibiting those pathways in specific malignancies, you'd be able to see the kind of responses that we saw in the double-head diffuse large B-cell. Double-head diffuse large B-cell, by definition, means MYC amplification or overexpression or translocation plus BCL2 or BCL6. So having a monotherapy activity that translated into complete responders for extended periods of time for that type of malignancy, which is highly aggressive, is quite promising. So by inhibiting PTFB, you inhibit the known oncogenes, allowing for an oncogenic shock that happens within the cell, inhibit the protein, and induce apoptosis. All right, you've already touched on some data points in general. So let's go to that. This drug is in two phase B, 1B studies. Could tell me what you can about that, how many patients you're enrolling, what sort of patients, and you've had some responses apparently. So because our compound inhibits specific oncogenes like MYC and MCL1, we've been thinking of what are the cancers that are dependent on those oncogenes. When you look in the lymphoma world, that there are several that are MYC-dependent. By definition, double-hit diffuse large B-cell is a MYC-dependent malignancy. 
transformed follicular, which is a transformation of indolent follicular lymphoma to aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma as a MYC-driven transformation. Similarly, Richter syndrome, which is the transformation of CLL into DLBCL, is also a MYC-driven malignancy, along with some of the mantle cells, especially the highly proliferative group blastoid mantle cell. So we're focusing on MYC-driven malignancies. In leukemias, there are several that are MCL1-dependent. So we really have not cured CLL when you think about it. We've allowed patients to, be, to have long PRs but we really haven't cured CLL. And when you look at patients who have failed venetoclax, for example, or have been on venetoclax for a long period of time, you find that those patients are dependent on MCL1 for survival. MCL1 is another protein, just like BCL2 in the apoptotic pathways. So they use MCL1 as an escape to the inhibition of BCL2. So inhibiting MCL1 can be very beneficial for those patients. Similarly, in solid tumors, there are several that are known to be MYC-dependent, and the list is quite long. So we're going to be focusing on malignancies that are known to be MYC-dependent, like ovarian, triple negative, breast castration-resistant prostate cancer. And we have a catch-all group that's called tumor-agnostic MYC-dependent population, given that there's more acceptability of using a biomarker for selecting for patients who have a specific biomarker to go after. So currently, we're doing a phase 1B, two phase 1Bs for that matter. We're doing a phase 1B that has two arms, an arm in aggressive lymphoma, which has double hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, transformed follicular and blastoid mental cell or mental cell after BTK. Then a solid tumor arm where we have ovarian, triple negative breast, castration-resistant prostate, the neuroendocrine subtype and then a tumor-agnostic MYC-dependent group. That is one trial. Because of the risk of TLSs in highly proliferative malignancies, tumor lysis syndrome, like CLL, we're doing a small dose escalation in CLL in patients who have failed both BTK and venetoclax. And as we find our dose, we're going to expand into that population, CL, relapsing refractory CLL after BTK and venetoclax, and in Richter syndrome with MYC aberration. These are the two ongoing trials. Are you recruiting all U.S. or is this global? Currently, it's in the U.S., but we are expanding in global sites. Okay. You've mentioned the double hit BLBCL, and you have had some data there. Could you just mention that for me? So allow me to clarify. So double hit diffuse large B cell, by definition, means overexpression or translocation of MYC and BCL2 or BCL6. The prognosis for those patients is really quite grim. And when you look at the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves for those guys, the overall survival is very short, 22 months. Their median PFS is about 11 months. So to have a monotherapy activity in that population is quite remarkable. So Bayer started a dose escalation trial in solid tumors that included NHL. Luckily, the one patient that was NHL was a double-hit diffuse large B-cell patient. That patient became a complete responder. As they saw that complete response, they added at MTD six more patients of double-hit diffuse large B-cell. Of those additional six more patients, another patient became a CR. So we ended up with a, two complete responders 
out of seven in this double hit diffuse large B cell. But what's really remarkable, Neil, that this complete responders were very prolonged. The first patient stayed complete responders for three and a half years. The second patient stayed complete response for two and a half years. Both of these patients, because of the pandemic, elected to stop treatment at the end of last summer. And it is quite remarkable to have patients stay on that long and continue not receiving any treatment. Very happy for those patients, and I'm excited, and hopefully there will be more patients that will follow their path. Have you had any safety signals? You know, inhibiting CDK9 has an on-target known toxicity because it inhibits MCL1, which inhibits the MCL1 in the apoptotic pathway of neutrophils. So neutropenia is an on-target tox, which is quite acceptable. Important to note that we have not had anybody drop out of the study due to any toxicity, including neutropenia. We've had patients that have stayed on the study for extended periods of time. We have those two complete responders for many, many years. We've also had several stable diseases that were stable for many cycles, like we had a cystic salivary gland that was stable for 24 cycles. We had a pancreatic for 14 cycles and several other patients that stayed on for quite a bit of number of cycles, which tells you that Number one, the compound is tolerable and the neutropenia was manageable. Interesting thing here is our compound has a very wide therapeutic index. So Bayer has had a previous compound called atuvacyclic, which it too is a highly selective CDK9 inhibitor, but it was oral and it needed to be dosed daily. By dosing daily the oral inhibitor, it's difficult to navigate around the neutropenia. We actually just met, uh, published a, a journal of medicinal chemistry paper describing uh, VIP152 discovery. And once Bayer found that they have the IV compound that is given once weekly, allowing for the inhibition of the messenger RNA deeply and profoundly for four to six hours, long enough to allow for this oncogenic shock that happens where you inhibit the protein synthesis and induce apoptosis, with once weekly while still navigating around the neutropenia was a very important thing to do. So having a wide therapeutic index is key in those type of therapies. I see. So what are the upcoming milestones for these programs, the next significant time points? So currently our trials are underway. As you can see, the different populations we're dosing, the Kinetics of response will vary depending on the type of malignancy we're dosing. We've seen the responses in the double hit diffuse large B cell in cycle eight and cycle 10. Nevertheless, the other malignancies that we're dosing, like CLL, hopefully we'll see responses sooner. But as you also can see with these type of indications we're going after, all of which are highly unmet medical need where there's no standard of care for those populations. So a 20 to 30% response rate in any of those populations can lead to a standalone phase two trial and would allow for further discussions with regulatory bodies and so forth. So as we see two or three responders out of the 10 patients in any of the groups that we're dosing, we intend to expand into a phase two. So I know it's a winded answer, but the principle here that I'm going to be sharing data as it becomes available in any of those populations. Okay. And now here comes the sales pitch. You're not the only company working on this target. There are several others. One rhymes with Merck. 
Why is your compound the better approach? With this type of drugs, having a selective CDK inhibitor is very important. If you look at all the other compounds, with the exception of one or two, they hit other kinases, which comes with a hefty toxicity profile other than neutropenia. Moreover, having a wide therapeutic window is really an important thing to allow for navigating around the neutropenia. I told you the story with atuvaciclib, which is an oral, highly selective, yet it was very difficult to navigate around the neutropenia. So some of the other competitors, they have selective compounds, but we'll, we'll have to see how the data comes together. But I believe our compound has the widest therapeutic window so far, allowing for dosing patients at high doses and for long periods of time, allowing for inhibition of the messenger RNA, causing that oncogenic shock, chipping away at the tumor while navigating around the neutropenia. All right. Now we're going to shift gears entirely. And I'm going to use a word that investors love, platform. You have a bioconjugation platform. So give me a couple minutes on that. What are you doing? What are the constructs like? So I'm very excited about our bioconjugation platform. As a matter of fact, some of the parents of those compounds that have worked at Bayer for more than 30 years have joined us to continue developing those compounds with us. Dr. Hans-Georg Lurkin and Dr. Beatrice have been with Bayer for 30 years, and they have joined us both, have developed these compounds from conception. So in that platform, we have two groups. We have a small molecule drug conjugate, which is geared for aggressive solid tumors. The targeting moiety is an alpha V beta 3 with a modified camptothecan or SN38 as the warhead. With a linker that cleaves extracellularly, it cleaves by neutrophil elastase. And it allows for fast permeation of the warhead into the tumor tissue with very low efflux. So it's activated in the TME? Yes. And the aggressive solid tumors have high expression of alpha V beta 3 and neutrophil elastase. And we use that as a targeting moiety. And then the low efflux out of the malignant tissue helps with the SN38 to be more effective. We're currently undoing our IND enabling work, and uh, we should be in the clinic second half of next year. The second half of our bioconjugation platform is what we described as the next generation antibody drug conjugates. And really, Bayer has spent a number of years on perfecting this technology. Our target, we have a CD123 and a first-in-class, CD123 is geared for AML, and the second, we have first-in-class CXCR5, which will be geared for B-cell malignancies. Both are linked to a very stable linker that cleaves intracellularly by a specific enzyme called legumane. Legumane is overexpressed in the tumor tissue, and it cleaves with a specific sequence after asparagine, making that linker quite stable. Now, the warhead that is being used is unlike all other ADCs out there. It's not a DNA alkylator or DNA damager. Our linker is KSPI inhibitor or kinesin spindle protein inhibitor, which inhibits the spindle formation as the cell undergoes mitosis. And as it does that, it causes catastrophic cell death. The beauty of this warhead, it is chemically modified as it internalizes and it cleaves intracellularly, it becomes hydrophilic. And therefore, it does not permeate through the cell membrane. So as it internalizes, it accumulates into the cell 
until the cell undergoes mitosis, then causes catastrophic cell death. And after it kills the cell, it doesn't go into neighboring tissue. So it's really quite remarkable technology. I'm very excited to be able to put this in the clinic very soon. But Bayer has done monkey studies where they've done a single dose and multiple dose, and they haven't seen any of the toxicities that you would have seen with all the other ADCs like neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, liver tox, capillary leak, and so forth. So I'm really excited that the two-legged animal model will translate to the other two-legged model, which is the human, and I'm very hopeful for that technology. Additionally, we have to continue on our platform, and we have other things that we have not yet disclosed in our platform, and we intend to continue building on it. Okay. You've mentioned Bear any number of times. So let's go to a straight-up business question. Who's got the IP for all this? Vincerex has the IP for all of that. We've acquired the whole IP portfolio from Bear in a clean Germanic type deal where, <laughs> where, where there's no clawbacks, none of the issues. So it's a very clean deal and we have the IP for all these compounds. Okay. I got two more questions. First one is just straight up money. What kind of runway are you working on right now? Well, we SPAC'd at the end of last year, December 23rd, right before Christmas. And that SPAC gave us $65 million. And in March or April, we called in our warrants, which gave us a little bit more than 40 some million dollars. So we have quite a bit of runway until the end of 2022 and beyond to generate and to execute on our current development plan. All right. I lied. I actually have two more questions. What's your most frequent investor question? We time everybody when they are going to ask the question of why did Bayer let go of this pipeline? Ah. The party line is strategic decision and uh, lucky for us. <laughs> okay, perfect. And the last question, this requires just a bit of a setup. I was talking to an individual once who was the CEO of a company. He had also been the CSO. He was a scientist by training. And, but we were sitting in the boardroom and he resigned in front of all of us and said, I want to be CSO again. I'm like, well, why? He goes, because I hate meetings like this. And he was quite adamant about it. So I'm going to ask you, sir, you come from a great deal of science. What is the best part and the worst part about being in charge of Vincerex? It's a difficult question, but I'll try. So when we started Vincerex, meaning me and Raquel and the whole team, we really wanted a company that is truly driven by science, having the science be the driver and having the passion of helping patients out there. And I say this wholeheartedly and very sincerely. If you ask anyone at Vincerex what drives you, they're going to tell you we are here to help patients and to cure cancer. That's really the driver. So despite that it is difficult sometimes being a CEO of a publicly traded company, Yet, I'm working with a dream team of drug development, and I feel that we have a really amazing group of people that are doing excellent science. So I'm immersed in science, but I also have to deal with the public market and all that, which is sometimes is difficult. But as you know, a lot of investors are really scientifically driven, and there's quite a bit of interesting questions that comes along the way, which is quite challenging sometimes, but it also allows us to position ourselves in a more scientific light. And I say that sincerely, that we are a scientifically driven company and we aspire to conquer cancer 
by addressing unmet medical need with paradigm-shifting therapeutics. Well, splendid. Thank you so much. Today, I have been speaking with Dr. Ahmed Hamdi. He is the founder and CEO of Vencerix. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to Canada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.